2 Corinthians 12:11 and 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The word of the Lord. Indeed, amen. Uh, Welcome. This past Thursday, some of you may know, uh, was Ascension Day. Ascension Day is a day 40 days removed from Easter Sunday. We know that Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday and then 40 days later ascended back into heaven with his Father. And so we honor that day 40 days after the resurrection uh, by looking at and remembering the Ascension. Now, many churches in the West have begun celebrating or observing Ascension Day on the Sunday immediately following it, which would be today. And the reason for that is that the ascension is often overlooked as a doctrine in the Christian faith. We spend a lot of energy, even entire seasons, looking at the virgin birth, looking at the perfect life of Christ, the holy life of Christ, looking at the atoning death of Christ, the resurrection, the victorious resurrection of Christ. But then we tend in our minds and even in our liturgies perhaps to skip to Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the advent of the church in the world, which we will celebrate next Sunday. But ascension, the ascension of the Christ, can be somewhat marginalized in this pantheon of Christian doctrines. And so churches recognizing that in the last decade have moved the observance to the Sunday following Ascension Thursday with the hope of putting more attention back onto the Ascension. The Ascension is a critically important doctrine to understand. The Ascension of Christ is not merely his plane ride home back to his father. Actually, the Ascension 
is the realization of oneness between God and man, which was the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ was to come and do away with the occasions for separation, sin and death, that were preventing this kind of atonement and oneness between God and man. He accomplishes that through his atoning death, through his resurrection. In the ascension, humanity, the humanity of Christ, humanity contained in Christ, ascends into the presence of the Father. He sits down at the right hand of God such that there is now no separation between God and humanity. They are together in the heavenlies at one. And we who are in Christ sit in the heavenlies there with Christ. We likewise now sit in the presence of our Father such that when we go to pray, we need only whisper. We are speaking into his ear as ones sitting at his right hand as his beloved. No more separation between us and God. What's more, in the ascension, Jesus departs from the confines of one particular physical body so that he might take up residence in many physical bodies, indeed that we would become his body, that we would be the body of Christ. So in the incarnation, when Jesus comes to us and walks the earth in flesh, he comes all the way to us, he joins us at our dinner table, And he sits at table with us, but because of the ascension, he now dwells at the table in us. Jesus told his disciples, I must go to you so that I may come to you. He left so that he might draw even closer to us. The ascension is essential to bring that about. Pentecost, of course, completes that realization of oneness as God pours out his spirit on all flesh and the person and life of Christ takes up residence in us by faith. There is now no more separation between us and God, never mind what any evidence to the contrary might suggest, what any feeling to the contrary might suggest when you feel distant from God, when you feel separated from God, those are things that have to do with unrealized awakening and not with reality. The reality is the life of God is in us by way of the Spirit. Christian, you are filled with the life of God. In you, is the mind of Christ, in you is the heart of Christ, in you is the faith of Christ, in you is the obedience of Christ. This is who you truly are. These things are more true of you than anything that you would see or feel or speculate about. All of your ongoing sin, all the fear that continues to grip you, for some of you self-loathing or shame, that you struggle with, those are shadowy remnants of the old you, which has been crucified. The new you is the person of Christ, and that is truly who you are. This is true for all Christians. We've been spending our time here on Sunday mornings 
thinking specifically about how this manifested in the life of the Apostle Paul, how it was that the life of Christ came to define him. The Apostle Paul saw his life in this way. He saw everything that happened to him, everything that he did, everything he said and thought. He saw it through the lens of him being in Christ, that all of this was a manifestation of the life of Christ in him. He was being animated by Christ. This is why, of course, he was able to endure so much physical and emotional trauma because he expected as much. He expected that as the life of Christ manifested in him, his life would look like the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus, which was no stranger to suffering and sorrow and hardship. Paul knew that, expected that. He likewise knew that the hardship of Christ that he would endure was not his to carry, that he would now carry it in Christ, that Christ would carry it with him and for him. That's why we see in Paul such an amazing example of a person who is not scrambling to cover up his weaknesses, not scrambling to avoid humiliation, not scrambling to make up for embarrassments, right? That's what we naturally do try to atone for our own embarrassments, cover over our own weaknesses, avoid our humiliation. The Apostle Paul has a resource to look these things square in the eye because he sees them all as verification that he is indeed in Christ, that Christ's life is indeed taking over his own. Now his followers, the Apostle Paul's followers, those people who filled the first century churches that Paul started, they were not always as convinced as Paul that this demonstration of weakness and humiliation in him was vindication or verification of Christ in him. In fact, they were often convinced in the opposite direction, that Paul's weakness and humiliation were reasons to doubt the legitimacy of his Authority to doubt whether God was for him. Why would God allow all of these things to happen to someone if he was truly for him? And so there's these new leaders, as we've been looking at, who are emerging in the church in Corinth, who are capitalizing on this sentiment, capitalizing on this doubt among the Corinthians. And these new leaders are maligning Paul. They are saying that, yes, his weakness and humiliation and embarrassment are reasons to doubt his veracity. And these new leaders, by contrast, are masters at covering up their own weaknesses, masters at avoiding humiliation, masters at atoning for their embarrassments. And they are appealing to the Corinthians to follow their lead and reject the leadership of Paul. They're mocking Paul and dismissing him. So Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians really to take on these new leaders to remind the people of Corinth who Christ is, to remind them about this new life that we have, this life where we have no need to cover over our weaknesses or humiliations. And in writing this letter, he engages in what the new leaders, what Paul calls the super apostles, 
were doing in Corinth, which is to flash their credentials. Okay, but Paul does this with an ironic twist. These new leaders are flashing their credentials of strength. They're proving themselves as impressive authorities. Paul enters into that, but he does it by showing his weakness. He demonstrates his weakness. Nevertheless, he is participating in this sort of crass comparison game. And we can tell from the way that he writes that he's a bit sheepish about that. Not sure as to whether he ought to be doing that. He feels a bit crummy about it and feels as though the Corinthians sort of backed him into this, that he had no other choice except to do this for their sake, to win back their trust of him. He writes this in verse 11 of chapter 12. He says, I have been a fool and you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. See, Paul didn't want to write this letter. He didn't want to have to go toe-to-toe with these new emerging leaders. He didn't want to have to commend himself to the Corinthians. He was hoping that they had established enough relational trust during his time with them such that they would have his back when he departed from them. He was hoping that they themselves would dismiss this folly from new leaders that would try and steer them away from the upside-down wisdom of seeing the glory in humiliation and weakness, seeing how the life of Christ is hidden in humiliation and weakness. Paul was hoping that he had instructed the Corinthians to a point where they would hold fast to that and continue to trust him as their apostle and not be led astray by these new emerging leaders that really knew nothing of Christ and were ministering a different gospel. He says here, it was evident you. He's appealing to them. Don't you remember? It was evident to you when I was among you that I was ministering Christ to you. I was performing mighty works. I was teaching you this way of Christ. You did come to faith under my leadership. Don't now forget all of that or discount all of that. What's more, he says, if you remember, our relationship was such that I did not even ask you to support me. I never took a collection for my own gain. I was never a burden to you. He's wondering now if perhaps that was a mistake. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have charged wages among you. Perhaps by not doing so, you have misidentified me as someone less than deserving respect. And so he apologizes here in jest for not charging them for his ministry. He says, maybe this is what failed to solidify me as your apostle. He's sort of thinking out loud here because he concludes, nevertheless, I have no plans going forward to ever ask you to support me financially. He writes this in verse 16, excuse me, verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you And I will not be a burden, 
For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Nice of Paul here to use a parenting metaphor on Mother's Day. I'm sure he knew where we would be in our (laughs) 2 Corinthians series. Uh, He says, I'm coming to you a third time here in the future. And when I do, I'm going to stick with this same approach. I am not going to ask for a collection to be taken in my name. And really, he shows here, the Corinthians, why that is. He displays his heart for them. He says, the reason why I'm not asking you to support me is because I love you in the same way that a parent loves a child. He sees this Corinthian church as his spiritual children, people in his spiritual care. He sees himself as their spiritual father. And herein, we see the heart of Paul. More so, we see the heart of Christ. And importantly, we see the heart that is in all of us by way of the spirit of Christ. Because how do parents love their children? What is the primary way in which parents love their children? Might be counterintuitive, but I think the primary way is that they endure. Okay? It's a happy Mother's Day idea. Okay. They, they, they endure. Now, some parents, some parents have skills. You've probably known some of these parents. I've known some of these parents. I felt ashamed in matching myself up to some parents who have real skills. There are some parents who start studying with their kids for the ACT when they're in the womb, right? You know these kind of, of parents. Um, mom is, you know, potty training that first night in the hospital. Uh, dad's on the phone lining up job interviews. He's going to be potty trained by Thursday, but, you know, he's not going to be able to speak yet. Is that a problem at all? Um, there's parents who really get out ahead of the curve, sort of A-plus parents. That's wonderful. Then there's parents that are more like me, what you might call Netflix parents. (laughs) Uh, You want to watch some more Netflix? (laughs) That sounds good to me. Um, Okay, but what's the same between skills parents and Netflix parents, A-plus parents and C-minus parents, (laughs) is that we endure. That really is, at the end of the day, what we have for our children. And we see the sort of calamitous effects in people's lives when their parents are unable to endure. It's endurance that is the primary way that parents love their children. See, because kids, they're people. They're people like you and me with no apparent social conscience. I think they probably have one. It's just not apparent. And so I can make breakfast for my children. I can bathe my children. I can dress my children. I can take them for an outing to the park. I can buy them a dog. (laughs) I can do so much for my children 
only to then in the next moment face rage when I try to give my three-year-old milk in the orange cup. Because blue is his favorite color. And there's this angst and rage. What kind of monster withholds a blue cup from their own three-year-old? The very people that children owe everything to are the people that they are most cruel to, that they most mistreat. In fact, this gets really highlighted when we have babysitters come over to our house because the babysitters will often comment to us, your children are amazing. They sat with hands folded quietly for three hours and when the minute hand clicked onto bedtime, they stepped quietly upstairs, brushed their teeth, tucked themselves in and sang Jesus songs until they drifted off to sleep. And (laughs) you're tempted to punch these babysitters. (laughs) Sorry, James and Julie, you guys are awesome. Um, (laughs) And all of you who babysit our kids. Um, It's like, you're you're lying to me right now. (laughs) Our children are, these are not the children that we know, not the children that we are familiar with. You're telling me that at no point did you want to bury your head in a pillow and scream the whole time that you were with my kids. And babysitters, no, of course not. No, and nor should they because that's not their role. That's your role, mom and dad. That is your role. It's to endure. It's to bury your head on the pillow and scream. Really, what parents are doing is they are waiting out the moments of their children's cruelty. They're waiting them out in hopes that moments of laughter would come again. They're enduring. See, because the most sacred thing that a parent can do is enjoy their children. But to enjoy your children requires that you endure through these moments of relational fire, relational torque. Paul is drawing on all of these themes here saying, I think of you Corinthians as my spiritual children. And so I'm going to wait you out. That's why I didn't ask for support from you. He says, I would give everything that I am for you. I'm happy to spend myself and be spent entirely for you, to empty myself for you, to have you keep drawing on the account of me until there is nothing left. He says, no matter how much you mistreat me, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to wait you out. And very much like the little children to parents, these Corinthians are grossly mistreating Paul. Okay, they are slandering him. They are engaging in whisper campaigns about him. They are believing false accusations against him. He details some of that here starting in verse 16 he says but granting that I myself did not burden you he says some of you admit that I didn't ask you for any money but I was crafty you say and got the better of you by deceit did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you I urged Titus to go and send the brother with him did Titus take advantage of you did we not act in the same spirit did we not take the same steps 
See, even though Paul didn't ask explicitly for a collection to be taken in his name to support his needs, some in the Corinthian community were wondering and spreading rumors that perhaps when Paul asked for the collection for the sake of the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem collection, what he was really doing was building up a reserve so that he could line his own pockets. And Paul is pleading with them. How could you think this of me? He says, if you think this of me, wouldn't you also have to think it of those ministers that were sent in my name, of Titus and others that I sent to you? He says, you know these brothers. You trust these brothers. Did they not also participate in the Jerusalem collection? Did they not operate the same way we operated? If you trust them, please then also trust us. He's pleading with them to see through this folly. But quite frankly, this is like talking to a three-year-old and trying to convince the three-year-old out of his, in my case, orange cup rage. It's not going to happen. He's not going to drink his milk from the orange cup. Blue is his favorite color after all. Paul knows that he cannot talk the Corinthians out of this kind of unreasonable cruelty toward him. This mistreatment of him. That's why he says in verse 19, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. You see, when I get down, when I squat down to try and talk my three-year-old out of his orange cup rage, I'm aware, like Paul is aware here, that the content of my words in that moment have little to no power to affect change in my child. Paul knows that writing this letter has very little likelihood of talking the Corinthians into a more relationally connected space with him. He knows that writing this letter, the content of the letter, is not likely to lead them back into those trusting places that they first enjoyed. But what Paul is doing here is the same thing that a parent does with a child. He is demonstrating to the Corinthians, I'm not going anywhere. You can mistreat me all you wish. I will not retreat. I will not turn back from the authority that God has given me to exercise in your lives. I will continue in it no matter how much you might mistreat me. I will endure. Paul closes this section again demonstrating to us that he is not putting much confidence in this letter leading to significant outcome changes in the relationship with the Corinthians. He says this in verse 20 and 21, I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you I may have to mourn 
over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He knows that on this future visit, it is likely that many of these same issues of relational discord will continue, that it's likely that much of this slander and mistreatment of him, this disrespect of his authority, will carry on. He's not under any delusion that he can talk the Corinthians out of that. He is preparing himself and preparing them, in one sense, to endure it, to simply sit in that with them and not retreat from it. He says here that he expects that he will suffer again the humiliation, that he'll be humbled again by the presence of ongoing, embarrassing sin in the congregation that he founded, that his name is associated with, that many people will look on this Corinthian church and think little of him, think that he is a pastor of no repute, that he's not a true apostle. He's expecting to suffer that humiliation expecting to be embarrassed. See, this is true for every leader. It's true for every parent. It's true for every person who is charged by God to exercise authority in any way that those over whom you exercise authority will embarrass you. Those over whom you exercise authority will discount it They will disrespect, they will reject, they will whisper campaign. That's a part of what it means to exercise authority in our fallen world. And let me tell you, that is not something to be despised. That's not something to try to avoid. That's not something to try to protect yourself from or to try to fix or remedy. That is something to be weighted out. It's something to sit in. In fact, that mistreatment is the fire of qualification. It's that mistreatment wherein leaders become qualified to lead as they sit it out don't make demands don't retreat from it it's the crucible of qualification it's how relational authority is forged I mistreat you with all I'm worth and if at the end of the day you're still there maybe then I can trust you This is what children are doing constantly with their parents. And we are no different. We're just oversized children. You can see this perhaps most clearly among populations of youth who have not gone through this kind of forging with their biological parents. Perhaps in instances where the biological parents have abandoned the children or died 
before the children were able to go through it with them. If any of you have ever tried to mentor young people, teenagers, who have experienced the loss of parents, you know what this is for them to mistreat you and mistreat you and mistreat you and then see, are you still there? Will you still be there? Or will you run from this mistreatment? It's the same in all of us. It manifests in every relationship of authority in our fallen world. Paul, elsewhere in his epistles, will list out what are the qualifications for leadership in the church. He lists out qualifications for elders and for deacons. Those lists there, they are born of this journey that we are witnessing as we read the pages of 2 Corinthians. We're watching Paul in this letter go through this crucible of qualification. Sit and endure the mistreatment that he is experiencing from the Corinthians. See, because his qualification to apostle the Corinthians is not in upright conduct. It's not in him reaching some bar of moral achievement or proving in sort of an abstract way that he's worth trusting and following. His qualification is being grown into as the Corinthians watch him endure their mistreatment of him. This is true here in Corinth. It's true in the other churches that Paul plants. He endures slander, whisper campaigns, and he doesn't quit on them. He continues to father them in the faith. He waits out all their defiance. Really waiting in hope that there would be enjoyment and laughter and delight and worship somewhere on the other side of all of this. With no clear idea exactly how to get there. When you exercise authority in your lives, and all of you do and will, when you exercise authority as a parent or as a teacher or as a church leader or as a friend or as a spouse or as a boss, you may very well be filled with wisdom. You may very well have wonderful guidance that you might be able to give to your employees or your children or your spouse or your church or whatever it may be. Your motives may even be wonderful. You may long to see people step into more flourishing. But whether you are qualified to lead in every one of those contexts will hinge wholly on whether you are willing to endure mistreatment whether you are willing to be disrespected and remain, not retreat when you feel mistreated, not hide, not cover that pain and sorrow, but to bleed openly and face it. That is where qualification happens. That is the plight of qualification. There is no abstract Qualification to exercise authority in our relational world. There's only on the ground, real relationships 
and we're qualified in as much as people will hear us, as people will lend us their ear. That kind of qualification is forged in this rather painful way. The most qualified authority to ever walk the face of the earth, of course, was spurned and rejected. He was hated and mocked and crucified. We've turned our back on Jesus a thousand times, a thousand times. And he is still there. Still offering himself to us. He has not retreated from us. In fact, he has come near to us, squatted down like a father to a three-year-old, bearing with us, suffering at our hands without responding in kind. He is waiting us out. He waits us out until all of our fits of rage are exhausted and we have nothing left to do but slump into his arms and hear his words and confess he is faithful. He's the Lord who remains. He's the Lord who endures. He is ever suffering that plight of qualification. That he might have our ears to speak his words into. That we would listen to him, acknowledge him as the true authority in our lives, submit to him, trust him, obey him. He is waiting for an authority that is forged in that kind of fire and mistreatment. He's crowned with a crown of thorns. And he's inviting all of us to wear that same crown with him. Let's pray. Father, we can confess that we often play the role of petulant children and though we owe everything to you that we are cruel to you that we mistreat you that we turn our back on you and reject you and rage and we're thankful for your son and the revelation that he is to us that you have not abandoned us that you've come to us and that you have determined that you will not be God without us but only God with us thank you for enduring all of the hateful malice of this world and continuing to be our God, continuing to be for us and with us, and even offering yourself to us to take up residence in us. You've proven yourself trustworthy through the ages, and you are proving yourself trustworthy in our lives. We pray a prayer that we know you will hear and answer, that you would remain patient with us and wait us out, that you would be there when we are ready to slump in exhaustion and acknowledge you as Lord. We know you will. We pray it in Christ's name. 
Amen.